HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode of Cutting the Curd is brought to you by Comté Cheese Association. Comté, an iconic cheese from the Jura Mountains of France, favored by cheesemongers and cheese lovers all over the world. Find out more at comté-usa.com. That's c-o-m-t-e-usa.com. And welcome to Cutting the Curd on the Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host, Kara Warren. And today on the show, we have Lou Bank, the executive director and founder of Sacred Agave, a non-for-profit group working to improve lives in the rural Mexico communities where heirloom agave spirits are made. And we have Chava Paraban, who manages Projects for Sacred on the ground in Mexico. And Chava and Lou are also hosts of a podcast called Agave Road Trip that helps bartenders understand agave spirits like mezcal and tequila. Lou and Chava, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having us. Thank you very much, Kara. Yeah. yeah. But uh, I think there was something fundamental that you didn't mention in uh, in the mission of our podcast. It's it's uh, specifically gringo bartenders, the kids that were interested. <laughs> hey, 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 not gringo, it's gringex. <laughs> yeah, I'm sorry. Just the people that are from somewhere else, just someone that is not from where those spirits are being made. Because those guys already know that, right? Exactly. So they don't need our help. <laughs> I love that you guys already have the enthusiasm and the spirit that it takes to teach people about agave spirits and about all things foodie wise, because it is hard to break the ice. I feel like, you know, and you guys are dealing with like some serious stuff in Mexico. Maybe, maybe not. I don't know. You'll tell me in a moment. Um, actually, I'm going to pitch it to, <laughs> you know, hey, I don't, you know, because it's in the news, right? I only see one. I'm seeing one perspective of this. You guys might know better. Um, I actually am going to throw it to Lou because I'd like for him to kind of <laughs> Break down what sacred agave is and how it's helping people in these specific communities in Mexico. Lou, what what is it? What is it that you guys are doing down there? Yeah, so I mean, this is the kind of thing where I could literally talk for two hours just about. And, and, the and you don't want that. Like nobody, nobody <laughs> wants Lou talking for two hours. I can guarantee that. So, Spoke, spoken <laughs> as a guy who was stuck in a car with me for five hours over the last few days, I think you're the right person to say that. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, so, so what we're trying to do at Sacred is to help improve quality of life in the rural Mexican communities where these spirits are made, and the truth is really that's sort of a strategy not a goal and and what i mean by that is you know what 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 
I keep coming back around to is this notion that in some of these rural communities, not all of them, but in some of them, the ones that I, that I really find myself drawn to, they don't really seem to have much consideration for the concept of efficiency. And while that sounds like a joke and sounds like I'm, I'm sort of making fun of them, it's, you know, my, my whole life, my world is about how to do things in a more efficient way. And then I, I see these, these rural communities where instead they're focused on best results. And it's a very different worldview, a different approach to solving problems. And I think that there is some real genius in that approach. It's not to say that, you know, th th this world that just gave us the vaccine to this, uh, the, this virus that has been locking us down, like I'm really grateful for the efficient world that I live in. But I think, I think that we can find better and uh, more sustainable answers to problems like water insecurity and food insecurity and climate change by having more conversations with people who live with this different worldview. The problem, the problem is that this different worldview is sort of at risk of, of disappearing because we because we keep doing things like drinking more mezcal and the result <laughs> of drinking more mezcal is that the efficient world is starting to encroach on these communities and you know one of the one of the biggest problems is the farms where these families who have been making mezcal for multiple generations the, the these families where they've been purchasing their agaves those farms are being bought up by the multinational liquor companies in order to support the production of more and more and more mezcal and you know, I don't, I don't want you to hear that as some kind of indictment on these multinational liquor companies. They're just giving what we ask them for. But I want to ensure the sustainability, and it's it's kind of arrogant of me to state it this way, but I want to sustain the help sustain the uh, these families with this multi generational wisdom because I don't think we can afford to lose that wisdom. So you know, one of the biggest programs that we have at Sacred see, I, I eventually got back around to it. One of the, <laughs> one of the biggest problems, one of sort the biggest of. programs, sort of one of the biggest programs we have at Sacred is replanting agave. We provide agave seedlings to these families um, so that you know, in, in lots of five hundred to seven hundred and fifty plants, so that when those agave reach maturity. They have the solution. They own the solution. It doesn't belong to some farm that could sell it out from under them. Gotcha. Yeah, and I think that something that Lou is saying, and I just had this conversation with the taxi driver that picked me out at 5 a.m. today. Uh, he told me how he grew up in rural Mexico when he was a child in a very similar fashion that my father did. And we were discussing insecurity in Mexico City. And he, as my father will tell you, they didn't know what a thief was. They, they wouldn't even steal like like milk or, or a cow from each other, right? In in, and, Me in Mexico City. No, well, even in Mexico, <laughs> my mother who grew up in Mexico City, I mean, she's also from Michoacan, but uh, she grew up in Mexico City and she used to tell a story about being 14 and driving her bicycle by himself from uh, like Tacubaya to Unam, which is some good like 14 kilometers. And everybody thinking that was absolutely fine having a 14-year-old driving her bicycle that distance. So it's uh, rural Mexico doesn't only inform what we understand today as rural Mexico, but it also used to, and, and still informs in many ways, uh, a city that 
a lot of people will think it's one of the most gargantuan industrially uh, constructed cities, right? Right, right. So, um, so, but I so, want to, yeah, like, yeah, I'm trying to figure out, sorry, yeah, yeah. we, went, we, no, we no, all went on a tangent no right there. <laughs> yeah, and, I, and I'm just, I'm just, I'm just, I'm, I'm, I yeah. see how you're saying like the culture of Mexico is changing and we're trying to get away from these, these bigger um, spirit groups. Um, so I want to get back to sacred and also mention like, what does that even stand for? Like I realized as I was looking at your website, who came up with the acronym and can you tell the listeners what it is? Yeah, sure. So the acronym stands for Saving Agave for Culture, Recreation, Education, and Development. And I just came up with it one night while I was drinking. And it, <laughs> it was, you know, I was thinking I wanted to have some kind of event that was a fundraising event. And, uh, you know, I wanted to have a fun name for it. And then the, the name struck me. But the truth is, like, since I came up with it, I feel a little hamstrung by it because everyone refers to the organization as Sacred Agave. Um, and I, I, like, to me, the thing that's sacred, isn't the agave, it's the people who work with it, right? It's that multi-generational wisdom that they're, they're shepherding, um, from their, their forebears. And really, am I saving agave or trying to help save agave, I should say? And even that, I, I don't think so. I'm, it's more like I'm sharing agave for culture, recreation, education, and development. Um, yeah, yeah. 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 No, and, and I think that something that we're talking about with Steven Alvarez, uh, we're a good friend that has a program called Tackle Literacy. Uh, he has one phrase that really struck me and I had never actually thought about it that way. But he in a way said, you know, you cannot love a culture's food and not love that, that culture's people. And it seems like in today's world, sometimes there, there happens to be uh, sometimes a disconnect, right? Where I love mezcal, but oh, you know, the people that are making the mezcal not that much. Uh, I think that's why it's so important making this distinction where it's not so much the agricultural product or the final product, but it's everything that it's around that supports this, what is really worth uh, taking a moment to, to preserve and restore in so many ways. And, and, you know, that's the point. That's actually why I have you guys on, because it's like cheese has that very similar ideology. <laughs> like we're always trying to relate it back to like the farmers and sustainability. And how can we help these people who have been like keeping this tradition alive? Um, so it's funny how this is all connected. I, I love that. Um, Chava, I'm going to give you another fun question. Um, how do you define heirloom agave spirits? And I know you talk, talk about this all the time, but uh, if for the listeners, the new cheese listeners who are, who are trying to learn one-on-one -on -one here, help us out. Well, actually, it's funny because I rarely use the word heirloom, too. Uh, actually, I, I love that Heritage Radio is called Heritage because I usually uh, I refer more to Heritage Gabba spirits. And it's actually something that I use not only to call agave spirits, I, I love to talk about heritage material culture. And the way that I like to define it, it's a, uh, a tradition and, yeah, a, a set of practices that are informed by the richness and diversity that a group of people and a, and, and a specific ecosystem has to offer. So it's kind of that clash between rather sophisticated cultures and rather diverse ecosystems, what I think are the two magic elements that create heritage agave spirits of heritage agave, uh, heritage material culture. Okay, so 
basically, we're going to keep learning more about this because there's so much I don't understand still, but I'm going to learn now. Um, I wanted to... I, <laughs> well, I, you, you know, you know in, in, in a nutshell, like if we're talking soccer, it'll mm-hmm. be a really good soccer player in a beautiful field. That's oh, what creates uh, heritage. <laughs> like, that's what gives Pele. <laughs> Excellent. You know, I, 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 boy, that seems so abstract to me, Chava. You know, oh, I, 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 to me, it's very simply like when I when I use the, the phrase heritage, um, uh, agave spirits, I'm talking about spirits that are made primarily through pre-industrial processes, mm. right? Mm. Using tools <laughs> that are generally made by hand or primarily made by hand and doing things that you're just not find, finding um, uh, feasible at a mass level. Yeah, but, you know, the, the complicated part there, and I'm sorry if I'm getting too into the weeds, and I, I know Lou is going to give me a little bit of trouble for this, but it's when... Oh, this, it's, isn't, this isn't our show. Well, <laughs> right? This is a well, cheat show. This is kind of give me a little bit of... Uh... No, no, no. I'm trying to learn about this <laughs> yeah, because, right? I, I mean, the, the whole crux of this is also, um, at some point in the episode, we're going to talk about cheese pairings with Mezcal. Because I thought it would be cool to try that out because I've never done that before. So, I mean, like, this is all, like, getting the background and and what is Mezcal. And then also, it was your website that said heirloom agave spirits on it. So I'm going with, with the jargon that you guys put out there. But I, I, I understand now it's heritage agave spirits, you know. Yeah, that's that's funny. Initially, I was using heirloom, and then Chava came along, and he started using the word heritage. I thought, oh yeah, no, that speaks better to what we're doing. And I thought I had changed it on on the website, which, well, I'll, I'll find. We, we'll talk about that afterwards. You can point me to the yeah, page. Yeah, yeah, that's a, that's, a, that's a side conversation. <laughs> well, no, like just heritage for me has to do more. Uh, like the biggest marker for a heritage product, I don't believe that it's scale. I believe that it's one of the markers that allows you to see uh, something that most likely is heritage versus something that it's more of an industrial product. But uh, when does too big is too big, right? As, mm-hmm. as we say in Spanish, que tanto es tantito? How little is too little? Uh, it's it's really hard to define it from that perspective. So that's a discussion that we'll have to have with Lou in a more aggressive fashion later on. Yeah, that's a whole episode, actually. I never realized that you viewed it differently. <laughs> no, 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 but I would like to put out to the listeners that you guys, again, you, you do Agave Road Trip on Heritage Radio Network. You're, you're a sister show, so I want to make that point out there. Uh, so my follow-up question to actually Chava's point Amen. a second ago, yeah, exactly, is um, how have you guys seen the Mezcal market change in the last five years, or has it not changed? I mean, you tell me. Yeah, oh, well, no, it's... Can, I, can, I, can, I, can I tell a story about that? Lou, it just happened yeah, to me. Yeah. I, yeah. I, hap- I talked with a 16-year-old. And uh, one I six or six zero, uh, one, uh, yeah, one six. Yeah, I usually talk with six, six zero, uh, but uh, <laughs> today I had the, the invaluable chance to talk to a teenager, which had, hadn't happened in my life in a long time. And the guy was very curious about he's the son of uh, somebody I work for, and he was telling me, like, oh, because Mescal is massive, right? I've like Mescal has always been popular, it's always been the coolest thing out there. I was like, well, yeah, since you can remember so (laughs) (laughs) so it depends who you ask if you ask a teenager they think it's been the coolest thing forever uh if you ask us i honestly don't think it has changed that much i think uh maybe if she asks you oh i have a completely different view really i I think 
well, like, well, I just think it hasn't changed that much because the same things that I think we were trying to showcase as valuable and fortunate stuff, we are still trying to showcase as valuable and fortunate. So for me, the values that started this are still there. That's how I, I, uh, I see that. Oh, I, I would agree that you can still find the values, but the values of, again, that of that multi-generational wisdom are, while they are the same size they had been and maybe growing a little bit, like we, we can see, well, I, I think the, the value of the industrial side of Mezcal is growing significantly. Like the, the market is growing at a rate that's just unheard of, right? Well, yeah, and, right and, it's, yeah. and that growth is being fueled not by this beautiful small stuff that we love so much, but rather by the industrial, I shouldn't say industrially made, because there's very little mezcal that is made in an industrial manner, but in stuff that leans closer to industrial, right? So, so that's where the growth is. But because you're seeing all that growth and all that money coming into the market, you're also seeing some of these families who were at risk of, of losing their children to the tradition, where the children were saying, well, I don't really see this as a future for me. <clears throat> Suddenly, some of those children are coming back to it. So it's sort of this two, I'm seeing anyway, this two-pronged change where the market continues to grow. It's now 1.9% of the buy volume of the tequila market. Whereas if we looked at it five years ago, it was half that. And, yeah, and, well. and that growth is fueled by stuff that's aimed at the broader, more industrialized marketplace, but that's also bringing some of these families back into the traditions. So it's yeah. sort of two directions. Yeah, and it's also fascinating. Every time we talk to these guys, one very consistent comment they'll say it's, we never thought Mezcal was going to be this valuable money-wise. We never thought we we're gonna be people were willing to pay these prices for this thing, and a lot of them are actually, uh, I think, very nervous that this is gonna somehow go back to where it was before. Because I don't know, uh, I don't know if this is familiar for you, Cara, but uh, mezcal used to be very badly seen as a liquor. It used to, or a spirit. Uh, usually, the joke was that if you were drinking mezcal, you were also using crystal meth. So it was <laughs> not this, in in Mexico. That was the joke. Uh, well, in, in the in the kids that I knew at the time, which yeah. probably is going to tell a lot about myself. But uh, it was <laughs> not. Uh, it was not seen as a prestigious thing, and the fact that today it is sometimes even more expensive than whiskey has a lot of the producers extremely confused. Yeah, I, I mean, I've seen it at a lot of different restaurants and, and wine bars and different spirit bars now, and it's it's really interesting to see how it's changed. Um, actually, so what I would like to do real quick, because you guys are just awesome, uh, I want to take a quick break, and then we'll come back and we'll discuss the <laughs> different Mezcal styles. So, uh, hey, everyone, you're listening to Cutting Curd, and we will be right back. This episode of Cutting the Curd is brought to you by Conte Cheese Association. Conte Cheese Association represents the Conte PDO, Conte Protected Designation of Origin in the USA. Conte is a raw milk cooked pressed cheese from the Jura Mountains of France. There, every day, 2,500 family farms deliver milk to over 150 local cheesemaking facilities, or fruitiers. This milk must be transformed into Conte within 24 hours of milking to preserve the lactic microflora in the milk. 
ensuring the cheese's aromatic potential. About 105 gallons of milk are required to craft a single wheel of Conte. Conte takes time to acquire its flavors in the affinage cellars. After eight months of aging by dedicated affineurs on average, each wheel of Conte is graded and shipped to market. No wheel of Conte is the same. Its flavors speak to the pastures where the cows grazed, the season in which it was made, the particular craftsmanship of the cheesemaker, and the time spent in the aging cellar. Therefore, every wheel of Conte is unique. Learn more about Conte, an iconic cheese from the Jura Mountains of France, favored by cheesemongers and cheese lovers all over the world. Find out more at Conte-USA.com. That's C-O-M-T-E-U-S-A.com. Welcome back, everyone, to Cutting the Curd. I'm your host, Kara Warren, and today on the show, I have Lou and Chava of Agave Road Trip slash Sacred Agave. They keep communities in Mexico alive with their uh, mezcal skills, and right now, we're actually going to break down the different styles of mezcal because I know so little, uh, I didn't even realize there were this many styles of mezcal, and we will try to just do the general versions, but uh, Lou or Chava, who would like to take this? Well, uh, are you talking about the mezcal that you shoot and the mezcal you sip, or uh, how we dividing oh, the Chava, different you d- You've got to look at the <laughs> notes, brother. There's notes here. Okay, it's, okay, like, it's, okay. It's, it's, I, I'm okay, all excited I'm about sorry. answering this. I'm, let me take this one, and Chava, you take the next one. There we okay, go. Absolutely. We'll do that. Yes. Okay. <laughs> so, so right. So when you're talking about styles, I, well, I guess actually because you, you didn't finish the question the way it's written. But when you're talking about styles, <laughs> what, true. You know, I, I didn't want to say all I the would names. Say, <laughs> yeah, that's so. That's I get that. That can yeah. be intimidating. Like what you what you sent us was a list of different agaves, and you know if if you think about the different agaves as being styles, that's sort of like saying that the different kinds of grapes that make wine are different styles. And, you know, to me, the, the the more interesting way to look at styles is the style of production, right? So you've got all these different ways that you're cooking the agave. You know, you can cook it underground in order. To, what you have to do is, is, is get the sugars to become fermentable sugar. So you're cooking the agave underground or you're steaming it or maybe you're even uh, blasting it with, uh, with chemicals. Like there's all these different ways you can do that. You can mill it by hand. You can mill it by using a, a wood chipper. You can mill it by using a, a stone wheel called a tahona that's pulled by a horse or sometimes it's pulled by a bull or sometimes it's pulled by an electric cart. You can ferment it open air in wooden barrels or you can ferment it in the skin of a bull, like a sack made from bull skin. Or you can ferment it in closed steel tanks like almost everything else we drink is fermented and then you can distill in wood-fired copper pot stills or you can distill in wood-fired clay pot stills there are some stills that have wooden components to them like there's all these different methods and to me like that that's where if you're looking at styles it gets most interesting um but also then that tends to speak to the hand of the maker um it took me years to come around to this idea where I, I I thought I was trying to find the agave. There's, there's like two to three different, two to three hundred different kinds of agave. I thought I was trying to find the agave that spoke to my palate, but really, in the end, turns out I was trying to find the 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 maestro mescalero, the the maker um, who spoke to my palate. 
because it's it's just like a chef when when they make something that they think tastes great and to you it tastes great try everything they make and go deep um and you won't be disappointed yeah and just a fine note on that too it's uh, i i think something that it's marvelous about the agave spirits context is that you get to taste communities you get to taste what a whole community understands as being delicious. So I think right now, uh, usually with, you know, like, like the way we consume food, sometimes we think that it's uh, the genius of one person, which is very valuable. And in this case, you're tasting the genius, the collective genius of hundreds of years and thousands of people synthesizing the spirit. And that it's a consequence of the technologies, the terroir, all those things are synthesizing the spirit. And Java, you just mentioned terroir because that was my follow-up question was going to be, um, what is it like um, in Mexico? What is that like terroir? I've never thought about terroir in terms of Mexico, which sounds ridiculous. I should have associated it. But like, could you give us some <laughs> background on that? Because I know it's a French, more of a French term and more of a, a European um, way to look at things. But how does that work in terms well, of Mexico? But the French spent some time in Mexico. so. <laughs> well, for me, it's, it's okay. really funny because, you know, I, I happened to live in the south of France when I was 17. And I got to travel, I'll say, most of Western Europe, a uh, good chunk of Eastern Europe. I'll say like the only place where I haven't been in Western Europe, it's uh, Ireland and Portugal. And of course, there's a lot of differences in the type of weather and the type of vegetation and the uh, hills and the valleys that you see. But when you are in Mexico and you drive for six hours from the mountains of Michoacan to the coast, it's so drastically, overwhelmingly different. And just, you know, you can be 30 minutes away from a place and, and that's avocado capital of the world. And then 30 minutes, 30 minutes away from that, you cannot grow one avocado to save your life. So I just think it's probably I, I, the only other place that I've seen that has such aggressive, crazy transitions of terroir is Taiwan. But uh, mm. there's a reason why the Portuguese used to call it Formosa, right? So for me, it's just... Uh, it's probably one of the most complicated puzzles when it comes down to terroir, what we have in Mexico right now. But is that helpful for mezcal then? Oh, yes, absolutely. For so many reasons. It's not only that agave gets different uh, spaces or uh, ecosystems in which it has to grow, but it's also a lot of it is wild fermentation. So you have different places where a ferment, like same agave, same technology to produce it. But if you are a little bit higher, a little bit under, just the uh, the, the cultivars of yeast are going to be so drastically different. And the spirit is going to taste like something that you've never think that came from the same area. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, I'd also say that when you're talking about terroir, to me, particularly when you're talking about terroir in Mescal, that you have to talk about the water. Yeah. Yeah, because, you know, the water at the end of the day, the water is going to be right around half, generally, around half of what's in that bottle. And the flavors of the water that so often will come from springs or wells um, will be informed, as Chava says, by the land itself. And you get all these different mineralities to it that, that I think are so distinct in that end product. 
Yeah, we even had the opportunity to go to a salt mine that, according to them, I mean, I don't know how they counted this, but it's millions of years old. I mean, not the people working it, but the geological <laughs> formation. And they had dozens of different cells that they could give to you there with different tests of salinities. And a few kilometers away from there, they were making some of the most beautiful mescalas we've ever tried. So, I mean, that, that's just like all these different variables that get to inform this, this drink. Right. And, and then like, I also want to bring up the point about aging because cheese gets aged. Uh, mezcal seems to go through some aging as well. Um, or does it not matter? You can tell me. But I, when I was reading the different labels, it's Oven, Reposado, Año. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong. I mean, th- those were the three I noticed. Uh, but does it matter? Does You know, what do you think? Oh, sure. Oh, yeah, absolutely it matters. So the, the third one you were looking for was Añejo. Uh, um, I knew I'd be the, the Gringax there. <laughs> <laughs> it's okay. Normally, I'm the Gringax, so it's nice <laughs> to have somebody else fill that role. Um, so, yeah, it's absolutely going to matter. Um, you know, you'll have some people tell you, uh, the, the agave geeks, that aging mezcal and wood uh, is not traditional, but – Chava and I have seen on our trip so many pictures uh, that that provide all the evidence we need that, in fact, it is historical. And, of course, it's historic because you, you, you had to store your mezcal somewhere. And storing it in is wood is going to be one of the more traditional ways. Storing it in clay is also a traditional way. Storing in glass, storing in plastic um, is, you know, it, it, it's traditional if you count tradition as 50 years, right? Yeah. So so generally the plastic, you know, is, is not going to give an off taste to it if it's been used long enough and it's food grade. The glass aging to me is the most yeah. interesting. Yeah. That's when it gets cool. Yeah. That's, go, go, Lou. Go, Yeah, because you're like just sitting in the glass, you think, that, well, the glass can't possibly change anything. But people forget that glass, glass is not a completely solid object. Things come in and go out. No, 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 Lou. That that's uh, I mean, if you're going to talk about microoxygenation, it doesn't have to do with the oxygen traveling through the glass. Yeah, like glass is absolutely not porous in any capacity. Well, sure it is. Otherwise, you wouldn't have flow glass. No, 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 no. <laughs> but but that, that that's a that's a whole different thing. No, no, that that the aging in glass. That there's two variables that can actually affect the spirit. One will be that if, if you have a cork that in some capacity is allowing an exchange with air, there's been almost no studies about this, but there might be that some possible microoxygenation, microoxygenation is possibly altering the spirit in some way. Oh, it would have to get in at least that way. If you well, think about the corks they use, what are they, Java? Well, they're usually corn costs. Exactly. So it's an imperfect cool. seal. So you yes, got to yes, have yes. that going in. Yeah, for, and, for, through the seal. Through yeah. the seal. Okay. Well, but I'd still, well, that's an argument yeah, for yeah, yet yeah, another yeah, yeah. podcast. That's another episode. episode. Anyway, that's another and episode. Then, and then, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But then there's also, um, you know, are you aging it in glass above ground or underground? Because you'll find people who just bury these uh, these 20 liter glass jugs, garrafones. And and so that in itself, and, and then you've got like absolutely no light hitting it, and you've got very constant temperature. Um, but then you'll also hear from some of the people who do that that really the effect is that you've got the earth coming in and out of the glass. So you know, nah, like, and that's nah, just no, no, no. Are you I, saying no that they don't say that, Chava? 
I've never heard that, and I hope they don't Seriously. say that. Oh, I've yeah. absolutely heard that. In fact, that's okay. why one of the families was burying it in goat dung specifically. Yeah, Ooh. well, I, I think the answer <laughs> okay. that I, right. I mean, I mean, no, the the answer that I think it's more feasible is that because of the technologies used for distilling mezcal, you have a lot of lipids traveling to the other side that they don't get to dissolve immediately when the spirit is young. So if you leave it, if you leave an alcohol and water solution with some lipids in there and other stuff that we don't really know what they are, they get to dissolve better into the spirit and therefore it changes through time. That for me is the most, uh, you know, like a reasonable explanation that I've heard about this. But I mean, honestly too, is that we're very, very jealous of the cheese context because you guys have so much, so many academics, like such a great, wonderful medium of information, whereas Mescal has a lot more humble, uh, let's say, bibliography available these days. And and then you don't even believe them when they say that there's something different about earth and goats. Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> well, I wouldn't call those kids uh, the academics, but whatever. Uh, you know, like, yeah, I mean, yeah. that's, I mean, and also, uh, and uh, the fact that, that Lou and I are, are fighting over this is perfect because most of the things that we know about agave spirits might change. It's almost like researching about Egypt, right? Today mm-hmm. you think this was the, the ultimate thing they said, and tomorrow, oh, they found something else. Yeah. So that's a very common situation with this thing. Yeah, I feel mycology is like that too. Yeah. So d- just to put a cap on the uh, the aging thing, so because we haven't even talked about aging <laughs> yeah. wood, right? So with <laughs> reposado, uh, in order to qualify as a reposado mezcal, it has to be aged between six months and 12 months in wood. And then for um, Añejo, it has to be a year or more in wood. Okay. And of course, you know, you, you put any kind of alcohol solution in wood and it's going to start pulling things out of the wood. Okay, okay. Yeah. But I think it works very, very different than cheese. So I, I like it. It's uh, usually you're just wanting to extract wood uh, with alcohol and, and dilute it into the spirit, which uh, also Lou and I, unfortunately, we don't have our cheese game very high up. So we we like we couldn't say I wouldn't be able to to explain what what the maturing process does in 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 the case of cheese. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, that's a, that's what we have affineurs for. That's what we have the academics for that um, on this program, because they can talk about it at length and, and break things down for sure. But a lot of it is about protein breakdown. But that's a whole other that's a whole other story as well. Um, <laughs> I wanted to ask you one more one on one question for the, the new listeners out there. I know Chava breathes with me on this one. But how do you distinguish tequila and mezcal? And then we're going to get into the cheese stuff. Like, I mean, how I personally distinguish it, one makes me remember the worst decisions of my life, and the other one makes me remember the best decisions of my life. But uh, I'm not going to say which one is why, is which, but I think Lou has a better, uh, clear-cut, good answer for that one. Uh, you know, so what I like to say is there's really so, – so it's basically tequila. They're both denominations of origin, and so there are rules about uh, – how you can make them and where you can make them. But the truth is, for the most part, it's about 
where you make it. Tequila can only be made in five states, primarily Jalisco, um, uh, but there are four other states you can make it. And then mezcal can be made now in 10 states, uh, though most of it is made in Oaxaca. There's some crossover in those states like Michoacan. You can make both of them. Um, uh, so it's where you make it. And then tequila, tequila can only be made using one agave, Blue Weber agave, uh, and then mezcal can be made with any agave. Um, now with tequila, you don't have to use 100% agave unless you call it 100% agave tequila. Um, you can use up to 49% sugars from some other source except another agave. With mezcal, it has to be 100% agave, that the, the, the sugars that were used to, to ferment. Yeah, but so – it's it's rather technical. It's uh I like I think Lou just made an excellent job in uh pointing out some of the most relevant differences between one and the other. But in a nutshell, there's just different rule books. Is the yeah, they're just but, different denominations of origins. Yeah, but have you know, having said that, I think the significant difference is if I've got a wall with one hundred bottles of tequila on it, and I randomly place my hand on one of those bottles, I've got about a a one in fifty chance of putting my hand on something that has pre has has been made using some level of pre industrial methods. Whereas if that same wall had a hundred bottles of mezcal on it, and I randomly put my hand on one of those bottles, I've got about a one in fifty chance of putting my hand on something that was made entirely industrially. So it's almost like the, it, it, it's almost the exact opposite um, situation. And as a result, I think I think that when you just randomly drink a mezcal, you've got a greater chance of being able to taste um, some of these heritage processes that have disappeared as a result of industrialization. Yeah, but also I think that something that I find fascinating about tequila is that you get to like from almost a more academic perspective, you get to try the same agave transformed with just different tiny tweaks in process. And I find that absolutely fascinating because in mezcal, like the, the, the thing is so diverse that it's really hard to understand a lot of how this decision affected this flavor. Whereas in tequila, I think it's a little bit more approachable if you want to understand a little bit more about that. So that's, a reason why I really love exploring or experimenting with tequila on my palate. Uh, Chava, I wanted to ask you, how do you choose a mezcal? Because there is all these, like you look at the label and 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 then how do you begin to process <laughs> he mezcal just, at this point? just drink whatever you give him. Hit whatever's closest? Okay, good to know. Good to know. <laughs> no, no, no. I mean, Lou, Lou is actually right. But honestly, if I can, uh, <laughs> if I can give the more sophisticated answer, uh, it's usually something that I am not familiar with. I think I choose the, I choose mezcal the same way that I choose my books, right? Uh, if I have enough peripheral information about it in the sense that I, I can understand that there's certain complexity to it and it's a region that I've never heard about and it's a name or a process that I've never heard about, I am just going to jump on top of that. Usually I wouldn't choose or drink something that I've already liked or that I've already explored just because I, I well, like I don't want to get bored. I want to get excited. I want to keep on being excited about this category. 
Yeah, I mean, that's why we're all foodies and, and drinkers. <laughs> um, I'm, so I'm curious, then, have you guys ever <laughs> right. um, have you guys ever done cheese pairings with Mezcal? We just did one. We well, just did one. You did one. I didn't. I just watched. I'm a vegan now. I can't do cheese pairings. Oh, my yeah, God. Poor sacrilege. Poor uh, it's, it's a disabled, it's a disabled yeah. entity these days. You know, I, I, I will say the one pairing I did uh, before, uh, before my, my world became vegan, it's fairly recent, was the, uh, the, first, um, the first pairing that you're doing, the La Luna Cupriata, right? So in, uh, in Michoacan, where La Luna Cupriata is made, the family that makes it also has been making cotija cheese for so long. And their cotija cheese is so freaking delicious. And so I, you know, I was uh, for uh, for about a month before uh, my cardiologist shut it down, I was eating the cotija cheese and <laughs> drinking their cupriata from the same place. And it was absolutely delicious. Yeah, I think your question was uh, directed towards how will we approach it, no? Yes, exactly, exactly. Like, and 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 then I was going to ask you about cotija cheese and like how it pairs. Like, do you do more aged cotija cheese when you do a mezcal pairing? What do you prefer? Ooh, I mean, this last one we did was in the. We were super lucky because it was in the French board. Mm-hmm. In uh, in uh, is it in the Soho Lou? Like yeah, I'm French sure guys, cheese board. Yeah, mm-hmm. the French yeah. cheese board, and we had the the privilege of uh, uh, the, the guy working there, which had absolute experience with this choosing all the cheeses. I think if you had asked us to do that, we will have just been terrified to the bone. <laughs> and wouldn't have known how to start. And on, honest to God, I wouldn't be able to tell a formula or a way to do it. But I just know that what happened to my body that day was religious. And so <laughs> I, I don't have an answer, but I know that uh, f- trying to find an answer will be an extremely useful endeavor. Oh, my goodness. Well, you know, I think it's, I think it's sort of, I mean, you know, when we've approached tastings before, I think it's like anything else. It's just... I, I, I had this really beautiful experience once uh, when I was working for a brewery uh, where I reached out. It was a microbrewery in uh, in Portland, Oregon called uh, Rogue Ales. And I had reached out randomly. This was in 2002 to Snake River Farms, which makes or, or raises cattle um, that qualify as American style Kobe beef. And I I'd reached out to them because my boss had said, hey, we want to have the perfect beer burger combo in our pubs. Uh, Go talk to these guys. And so I I said to them, hey, you know, I want to do this. We want to pair up your burger, this American style Kobe beef burger with the perfect beer. And they said, well, okay, great. What is the perfect combination? And I said, I don't know. So they sent me 40 pounds of steak. (laughs) Like, I think it's, you know. I don't, I think that's as academic as I get is just put it all in front of me and let me, let me just go into it and, and figure out what tastes good together. And sometimes, right, you're trying to get flavors that, um, that are similar. And then you're sometimes looking for flavors that are completely opposite of each other. And then you've also got, you know, textures that you're trying to match up or that you're trying to, to, um, uh, find departure points from you've got acids and fats. So there's all this stuff you can play with whenever you're pairing anything. Yeah, no, no, definitely. Well, I realized when I was working on the pairings for these things, like, so with the Hoven uh, mezcal, it was like super hot. 
Like it, you know, it's very high alcohol. So to weigh the play that I, I definitely felt it needed a sharper cheese. And then I, I realized, of course, Cotija would be the way to go. Um, but then I also had like the Esfuerzo Tepezate. I don't know if I'm saying that perfectly, but that was like very leathery, earthy. So I was like blue cheese all the way on that or an extra age Gouda. I mean, it was very interesting to, yeah. to play around with this and see the different levels because it does go from even some smoother ones versus like the sort of citrusy ones uh, that could go with a goat cheese or a brie. I, I did have a lot of fun with this. Uh, I'll probably post this in the notes on the show. This way people can read the names. It might be a little more clear. Uh, but uh, it was very, it was a lot of fun. Uh, what were you going to say, Chava? I'm sorry. I interrupted you a moment ago. Oh, no, 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 no. Uh, like I, Whatever I was going to say, uh, definitely you made a better version of that. Uh, <laughs> yeah, like that, that sounds fascinating. I really want to just look at, at the like all of your notes and try to find cheeses in Mexico that will have that because again like as as Lou is saying it's it's just I don't know it's almost like listening to your favorite music being remixed in a way that you never thought was possible and then for it to be to make absolute sense so yeah I mean I, ju I just think it's really exciting yeah you guys are going to learn more about cheese through me I'll probably go on your show at some point I hope I'm inviting myself so that we can like cover the cheese yeah, yeah, zone yeah, to the mezcal group because uh, you know it's, it's fun to share the listeners yeah honestly what I'm thinking uh, Kara is that what we'll do is we'll grab a bunch of cheeses from Mexico and just I'll smuggle them back with me and then like we'll we'll have you talk to us about those cheeses and what they tell you about the oh, places awesome. they were made and how they might pair with things you would normally taste with cheese or drink with cheeses up here. Oh, that would be that would be absolutely the greatest thing. I would love to do that. That would be dope. And if you're the smuggler, I'm all in. That's it. <laughs> <laughs> well, Lucas. Not a lot of talents, but if he has one, <laughs> it's that one. Oh, my well, goodness. That, that just put me on the radar of all of Homeland Security. Thanks for that, Java. <laughs> Always trying to serve you, Lou. Always trying to make your life fun. <laughs> so I just wanted to say um, a big thank you to having you guys on the show today, by the way. This was awesome. I, I had a lot of fun. Um, and I wanted to know what can we look forward to on – do you have any upcoming content that we should look forward to on your show? God, probably not. What do you think, Java? <laughs> Oh, we have so much stuff. <laughs> Are you kidding me, Lou? We just spent a whole week talking to people about crazy stuff we're going to make. I mean, I, I, I already i am trying to go, to get agave. We're going to make an agave wine. That's on the, on the works. Uh, there, there's coffee. There's beer with agave. We, we're becoming like the Pandora box of agave. All oh these gosh. things that people thought, like they were like, okay, agave will just make spirits. Oh no, we are dangerous and armed and funded. So, dude, <laughs> most importantly, funded. You know, we actually, we one of the things that we did while we were in New York was we were hanging out with Soder Teague over at uh, Amoria Margo, and we agreed to do some crossover episodes of our podcast. So, we, we I don't want to get too much into the detail, particularly because it might change. But uh, in essence, we're going to throw some challenges challenges at them with some Mexican spirits uh, in terms of how to take these odd spirits they've never tasted and turn them into cocktails. Oh, I'm looking forward to yeah. that. That'd if be cool. that's not exciting, what the hell it is, Lou? 
<laughs> Wait, no one, no one heard this at all. That's, yeah, that's yeah, yeah, it's all fun. good. <laughs> all right, guys, uh, I'm going to do my thing right now. Thank you both for coming on the show. Um, hey, everyone, if you're listening to this program, please follow them on Instagram at Sacred Agave and at Agave Road Trip. Uh, you can also follow us at Cutting the Curd and myself at Kara Warren. And please listen and subscribe to Cutting the Curd via Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Thanks and eat more cheese. Cutting the Curd is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.